Essex for a great deal longer than most potentates of the home counties. Until little more than a century ago, their neighbours and vassals had mainly consisted of lowly farmers eking a living out of the flat and boggy marshland at the base of the downs. But the roads and the railways and the invention of the Saturday to Monday had brought the haute bourgeoisie flooding to the area in search of ton, and, like Byron, the Broughtons awoke to find themselves famous. Before long, the local mark of whether one was in or out was largely based on whether or not one was on their visiting list. In fairness, I must say that the family did not seek its celebrity, not at first anyway, but as the major representatives of the ancien riche in an upwardly mobile area, their power was forced upon them. They had been lucky in other ways. Two marriages, one to a banker's daughter, and the other to the heiress of a large section of San Francisco, had steered the family craft through the turbulent seas of the agricultural depression and the Great War. Unlike many such dynasties, they had retained some, if not all, of their London holdings, and various tricks with property in the sixties had brought them to the comparatively safe shores of Mrs. Thatcher's Britain. After that, when the socialists did start to regroup, they turned out happily for the upper classes generally to have been reborn as new labour, and so would prove much more accommodating than their rapacious political forebears. All in all, the Broughtons were the very acme of the surviving English family. They had reached the 1990s with their prestige and, more significantly, their estates practically intact. Not that any of this was a problem for the Easterns. Far from resenting the family's privileges, they positively worshipped them. No, the difficulty was that despite living two miles from Broughton Hall itself, despite Isabel's telling her girlfriends over lunch in Walton Street what luck it was in having the house practically next door, still, after three and a half years, they had never set foot in it, nor succeeded in meeting one single member of the family. Of course, David Easton was not the first upper-middle-class Englishman to discover that it is easier to demonstrate a spurious aristocratic background in London than in the country. The problem was that after years of lunches at Brooks's, Saturdays at race meetings and evenings at Annabelle's, mouthing his prejudices against the modern mobile society, he had entirely lost touch with the fact that he was a product of it. It was as if he had forgotten his father had been the managing director of a minor furniture factory in the Midlands, and it was with some difficulty that his parents had put him through ardingly. By the time I met him, I think he would have been genuinely surprised not to have found his name in Debrett's. I remember once reading an article in which Roddy Llewellyn was quoted as complaining that he had not been to Eton, as his elder brother had, because it was at Eton that one picked up one's lifelong friends. David happened to be passing my chair. Quite right, he said. That's exactly how I feel. I looked across the room to catch Isabel's eye, but I saw at once in her sympathetic nod that she did not want to be in my conspiracy, but rather in her husband's. To an outsider, it seems a vital ingredient of many marriages that each partner should support the illusions of the other. Protected as he had been by a combination of Isabel's kindness and most London hostesses' indifference to anything beyond their guests' ability to talk and eat the food, 
It was now bitter indeed to sit at smart dinner tables and be asked about Charles Broughton's trip to Italy, or how Caroline's new husband was shaping up, and have to murmur that he didn't really know them. But how extraordinary would come the answer. I thought you were neighbours. And even in this admission there was a certain dishonesty, for it was not that David did not really know them. He did not know them at all. Once at a cocktail party in Eaton Square, he had ventured an opinion about the family only to hear his companion ask, But isn't that Charles over there? You must introduce me and we'll see if he remembers where we met. And David had had to say he felt sick, which was more or less true, and go home and miss the dinner they had all been going on to. Lately he had taken to assuming a slightly dismissive air when they were mentioned. He would stand loudly silent on the edge of the discussion as if he, David Easton, preferred not to know the Broughtons, as if he had tried them and discovered they were not quite to his taste. Nothing could have been further from the truth. In fairness to David, I would say that these frustrated social ambitions were probably as secret from his conscious mind as they were supposed to be from the rest of us, or so it seemed to me as I watched him zip up his barber and whistle for the dogs. Fittingly, perhaps, it was Edith who suggested the visit. Isabel asked us at breakfast on Saturday if there was anything we'd like to do, and Edith wondered whether there was a local stately, and what about that? She looked across at me. I wouldn't mind, I said. I saw Isabel glance at David deep in his telegraph at the other end of the table. I knew and understood the Broughton situation, and Isabel knew I knew, though, being English, we had naturally never discussed it. As it happens, I had met Charles Broughton, the rather lumpish son and heir, a couple of times in London at those hybrid evenings where show business and society congregate, but, like the crossing of two rivers, seldom mingle. These encounters I had kept from Isabel for fear of salting the wound. "'David,' she said. He turned the pages of his newspaper with a large and insouciant gesture. "'You go if you want to. I've got to drive into Lewis. Sutton's lost the petrol cap of the lawnmower again. He must eat them.' "'I could do that on Monday.' "'No, no. I want to get some cartridges anyway,' he looked up. "'Honestly, you go.' There was reproach in his eyes, which Isabel dealt with by pulling a slight face as if her hand was being forced. The truth was, they had an unspoken agreement not to visit the house as members of the public. At first, David had avoided it because he had expected to know the family quite soon, and he did not want to run the risk of meeting them from the wrong side of the cordon. As the months and then years of disappointment had unfolded, not visiting the house had become a kind of principle, as if he did not want to give the Broughtons the satisfaction of seeing him pay good money to see what should, by rights, have been his for nothing. But Isabel was more pragmatic than her husband, as women generally are, and she had grown accustomed to the idea that their position in the county was going to be deferred for a while. Now she was simply curious to see the place that had become a symbol of their lack of social muscle— she did not, therefore, require much persuading. The three of us packed into her battered Renault and set off. I asked Edith if she knew Sussex at all. Not really. I had a friend in Chichester for a while. The fashionable end. Is it? 
I didn't know counties had fashionable ends. It sounds rather American, like good and bad tables in the same restaurant. Do you know America? I spent a few months in Los Angeles after I left school. Why? Edith laughed. Why not? Why does one go anywhere at seventeen? I don't know why one goes to Los Angeles, unless it's to become a film star. Maybe I wanted to be a film star. She smiled at me with what I have since come to recognize as a habitual expression of slight sadness, and I saw that her eyes were not blue as I had first thought, but a sort of misty grey. We turned through a pair of monumental stone piers, topped with lead stags' heads, antlers and all, and started down the wide gravel drive. Isabel stopped the car. Isn't it marvellous, she said. The vast mass of Broughton Hall sprawled before us. Edith smiled enthusiastically, and we drove on. She did not think the house marvellous. No more did I, although it was in its way impressive. At any rate, it was very large. It seemed to have been designed by an eighteenth-century forerunner of Albert Speer. The main block, a huge granite cube, was connected to two smaller cubes with stocky and cumbersome colonnades. Unfortunately, a nineteenth-century Broughton had stripped the windows of their mullions and replaced them with plate glass, so now they gaped vacant and sightless across the park. At the four corners of the house, squat cupolas had been erected like watchtowers in a concentration camp. All in all, it did not so much complete the view as block it. The car crunched comfortably to a halt. Shall we do the house first or the garden, Isabel, like a 1960s Soviet military inspector?